Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 64, I speak with Tyler Swan, the co-founder of Claro. We discuss how he quit his marketing job making $9 an hour in Canada after years of study to work in construction where entry-level roles were paying double or triple in the early 2000s housing boom. How his experience building and running a 15-person construction crew helped him when he moved to Australia and pivoted to the recruitment industry. Wanting to run his own recruitment business after seeing the management incompetence of his former employer and the roller coaster ride of starting a business just four months before COVID. He explains how their mindset and focus helped them to grow 339% last financial year to do over 12 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you're looking for great talent or a new role, in technology, digital, sales and marketing, check out claro.com.au, that's C-L-A-R-R-O-W.com.au. So I'm here with Tyler Swan, the co-founder of Claro. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thank you, Derek. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Claro? What did you study? What type of early roles or companies did you work in? Uh, yeah, sure. So I studied double major in marketing and entrepreneurship and tacked a little HR certificate on there as well. Um, I think for my final assignment for my entrepreneurship degree, we had to put together a business plan on, you know, it was like if you could get unlimited resources in terms of raising money, what what kind of business would you put together? I put that together as my final assignment. The professor said, look, I think that we can actually put this into the graduate level business plan competition that goes across North America. Um, I didn't think much of it was like, yeah, sure, go for gold, Um, fill your boots, Um, but actually made it as a finalist, got flown up to Toronto, presented in front of, you know, the CEO of Rim Blackberry, the CEO of uh, Microsoft for Canada at the time. We didn't win, unfortunately, but it just kind of I guess, sparked a little bit more of that entrepreneurial flair um, within me, kind of, I learned a lot from that as well, kind of seeing how people were pitching their business, you know, almost that sales element to it where, you know, you're kind of thinking, you know, sales isn't that important where as long as you knew what you were building in terms of a business that you could build a strong business, but, you know, kind of triggered that, you know, sales actually is quite an important skill set within uh, entrepreneurship. Um, from there, I moved to Vancouver. Um, and so what was the business plan? What, what was your model or your, your um, product or service that you sort of pitched? It was actually um, smart power meters. Um, so this was back in 2003. Um, yeah, so at the time, you know, everybody was going around just manually reading the power meters. Um, you know, the internet was still you know, really loud dial up and everything, but, you know, everything that we were talking about in terms of marketing and future thinking from an entrepreneurial mindset was, you know, that internet will become more and more entrenched in our lives. Um, So it was the idea of being able to develop a a power meter that could feed the data across 
um, to the power companies and power companies basically can produce power, but they can't hold it. So they kind of use that data to understand like, okay, historically, how much data we, uh, how much power do we need um, for, you know, when the temperature is this and, you know, this many people on the grid. Um, but there wasn't that real strong, I guess, real time data that was being fed into them. So when you produce that load um, energy, then if it isn't used, then it's just lost, but the cost is still there. So getting as close to that load as possible is a major cost savings for power companies. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I built it out it was just like, you know, if, if I got, you know, $5 million in uh, VC funding or what have you, then I could, you know, get the people together to develop this prototype and this is how we could roll it out. And the future that we see is that, you know, either satellites pulling this data at a real time and feeding it uh, directly into, um, into these power companies or it being sent over the internet at a real time basis. It would do away with people having to go and drive around and walk up to people's pe uh, power meters. Um, so that was the concept behind it. Oh, very, very nice. And obviously, it's become a big thing these days, sort of smart tech and even for consumers to monitor their consumption and usage yeah. and, and that sort of thing. And, and then, then you mentioned saying you moved to Vancouver shortly after that? Yeah, I moved to Vancouver shortly after that. Um, got, that was around 2005. Um, so it was about two years after Vancouver had just won the Olympics bid. Um so I arrived there, started to got my first kind of graduate role in marketing. Um, you know, you're kind of coming out of university thinking that you're going to be sitting at the boardroom table talking about marketing strategy. And then you kind of come out and you take your first kind of low level marketing role. And they're like, you know, put this graphics together and do this, do that. Um, but what I was noticing at that time was, you know, the building market was exploding in Vancouver. It was, you know, people were talking about why are people going into professional roles where you're getting paid $9 an hour when you can go to a construction site right now and get $22 an hour picking up picking up trash? Um, so I think one of the big takeaways that I took from doing, you know, studying entrepreneurship was that idea of find an opportunity in the market, act on that opportunity in the market. So I didn't know how I was going to do it. You know, my dad owned a heating business and he was always kind of in construction, ran his own construction uh, or heating business growing up. So he was an entrepreneur and he was in that industry. And, you know, I always helped him in the summers and everything. So it was a bit handy, kind of found, applied for a couple of construction-based roles, got my first job on a roofing crew, was just a sponge for information, was just like, okay, how do you do this? Just very quickly picked up, you know, how to do waterproofing. On a roofing system, uh, got kind of tapped on the shoulder by the guy that was running the business. Look, you know, you know what you're doing. You have some management skills. Let's give you a crew. From there, I was kind of again just a sponge. I was like, okay, let's take a look at every invoice that I can get my hands on. How much money are we making off of this um, this piece of work? Uh, and then I kind of came up with the idea to go out and get my first kind of small business loan. Um, and then I started going to some of the suppliers and being like, Hey, look, you know, I've got the tools, I can put together a crew, um, you know, will you send the work my way? And they were more than happy to send the work my way. So then I kind of ventured out on my own. Um, and then from there, I kind of started picking up 
right? Took on two crews, um, grew the business up to around 15 employees. We were doing stuff other than that, like siding and decking. Um, but I was kind of approaching 30 years old and I was like, if I'm going to travel, now's the time. So I decided, and, you know, the housing market um, took a big uh, nose dive um, after the mortgage crisis in the US. And that kind of, although we weren't affected in Canada directly by that, the fear that went through the market definitely affected us. So it was kind of at a good time where I was like, oh, it's twice as hard to make, you know, to run this business as it was before. So decided to sell it off and then come over to Australia. Um, just did some backpacking on the way over here. And then when I arrived in Australia, I just saw I was applying for roles, didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was like, you know, the idea was never for me to be in construction. It was just an opportunity to grow a business, which I did. Um, I saw an ad for a recruitment consultant position. And I was like, oh, I've got my HR certificate. I know how important, you know, getting the right people into a business is for its success. And so I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's a real skill set that I could probably round out a little bit better. So I put, put my CV in. I don't know why I ever got a call given, you know, coming straight out of construction, but somebody gave me a chance um, when I started interviewing there. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, automatically they were like, oh, do you want to go into the construction team? And I was kind of like, no, I'm kind of over construction at this point, you know, but I am very interested in technology. I you know, still loved putting together, you know, my company website, loved doing little bits of design. I still had that kind of marketing, you know, um, side of me. And yeah, so I ended up in the technology team. And then that was just kind of a bit of a baptism by fire. Um, you know, you think you understand technology and then you, you know, get in there and you're like, oh my God, there's a whole world here that I just didn't know existed. Um, but yeah, it did well there. And then uh, I guess from there, my career just continued to progress within recruitment um, and just started, I guess, everywhere I went, I kind of quickly got tapped on the shoulder to step up into management, step up into broader responsibilities because I had that kind of broader business acumen um, and knowledge and, you know, understood some of the pain points that the owners were going through. I wasn't just coming at it from like that pure employee perspective. I, I knew the pain points that they were going through. So that kind of just brought me to the point where, yeah, I've been doing and specializing in IT and digital recruitment for 12 years now. So, so if we go all the way back to when you're at this graduate marketing job, like you said, making $9 an hour, you know, your dad's in, in the sort of the trades and HVAC. What did your marketing um, friends who studied marketing and the other people working in marketing when you said sort of stuff is I'm going to go work in construction, did they think you were crazy and like, you know, it, it's a bit of an odd jump or, or did, again, some of your family and friends knew you, you, your dad was in that field and it wasn't that obscure to them or, or other what other people doing where they're like, what the hell am I doing here? I could make three times as much, you know, over here. What am I doing? I would say a lot of people were doing it at the time. Yeah, a lot of people were, you know, going, you know, I think minimum wage at that time was around six, $7 an hour. And you could jump straight into a, you know, $18 an hour or, you know, $15 an hour job with no real experience. You know, if anything, once I did it, that's how I knew that I could put a crew together because a bunch of my friends were in similar situations where they're like, I've just graduated with a English degree. 
you know, you know, I've graduated, but what do I do now? You know, do I go as a teacher assistant and get paid, you know, minimum wage for, you know, this many years, or do I, you know, chase the money? And so there's quite a few people out there that were more than happy to chase that money. And, you know, so I, I don't think it, it was definitely a shock to my system going from, you know, putting on a collared shirt every morning, walking in an office environment to, you know, and kind of my mindset coming out of university to, you know, throwing on a dirty pair of jeans, you know, and going to a work site where you're just getting absolutely filthy every single day. Um, but, you know, it was also probably a very enjoyable time. Like it was, I went from that office environment to like working out in the sun and, you know, getting in shape and, you know, working hard. And, you know, so it was, it, you know, it was a weird move and, you know, quite a risk that I took making that leap of faith. But, you know, there wasn't really a point where I was like, what have I done? And, and what about your dad? Like some people who are in a trade actually or a business, like maybe they're a lawyer and they tell their kids, whatever you do, don't become a lawyer. Was your dad positive about you sort of being in a similar industry or was he sort of nervous about you doing that and discouraged you? Uh, no, he was no, never discouraging. I think, uh, if anything, you know, I think my dad always thought of it like, you know, uh, maybe someday he'll come home and take over the family business and, you know, take it to that next level. Um, but it, yeah, so he, he, he was never opposed to that. He, you know, that was his world. He knew, you know, it meant that we could talk on that same level. Like, you know, when I was talking about problems that I was having with my crews and stuff, he completely understood it. You know, he was a very good, like quality builder. He ended up to leaving HVAC and going on to um, becoming like president of Home Inspections Canada. And he became quite, you know, passionate about the quality of how houses were being built and stuff. So me being in that industry and building you know, he was a sounding board that I could go to around, you know, you know, what are the codes around this? And he was, you know, so we, I guess we kind of bonded around that a little bit. So it was never, you know, what have you done? You know, you went to university, you weren't supposed to follow in my footsteps. It was, you know, okay, great. You've got this basis of education behind you that you could kind of probably apply to this industry and take, you know, things to the next level. Um, yeah. And what about when you're a teenager, like you studied marketing and entrepreneurship, which is probably a lot more popular now, perhaps, than, than it was back then. What, what were Definitely. your thoughts as a teenager? Did you, again, want to be an entrepreneur like your dad, where, where you think, one, but I'll just get a bit of study behind me? Did you want to work in marketing or sales? Or what was your sort of thought process when you were sort of 15 or 17 and picking what to well, study? When I when I graduated uh, high school, I went out and moved to Banff. I'm big on snowboarding. Um, so went out there to do kind of a ski season. And this is like back 1999. Um, and it was kind of like, it wasn't called boost, but it was kind of like the first boost juice there. And, you know, it, it was the first time I saw, you know, kind of like a fast food smoothie place. And we were obsessed with it. We, you know, like, we'd be like, okay, you know, go out on a big night next day we'll we'll make ourselves right we'll go and have a wheatgrass shot and you know have you know have uh one of these smoothies um and i was like there's nothing like that in nova scotia so i was like okay you know maybe i'll go back to nova scotia and i'll this is what i'll do i'll be one of the first people to launch you know this 
smoothie business and, you know, roll it out. And I would go down there and I would sit there and I'd watch how many people were coming in and, you know, what the average price was that they were paying for everything. I'd sit there for eight, nine hours straight, just writing down and trying to get an idea of what the revenue was that they were making and, you know, going, okay, they've got, you know, three staff that work, work, uh, it get an, you know, I called up the mall that they worked in and said that I was interested in a stall and trying to get prices for it. So I was putting together, you know, at the time I didn't know what it was called or anything. I had no training in it, but, you know, I started talking to my mom about, you know, this is what I want to do this, you know, I've got this idea, you know, I'm going to come back to Nova Scotia. I'm going to do this. And she was very adamant that you don't want to start a business without knowing how to run a business. Like, you know, just do me a favor, go to university and learn how to run a business before you go and jump with both feet. Because I think, you know, my dad, he knew what he, he knew HVAC very well. He knew his skill set very well, but he didn't have that broader knowledge of like, okay, you know, how much money do I need to set aside? You know, what, what, you know, what do I need to do? What's my EBITDA? What's my, you know, profit for last year? You know, like, am I watching PNL? He was just kind of going to work every single day. Um, and just, you know, at the end of the year going here, accountant work this out for me. So I think she saw that and knew that I needed to go and kind of learn these, these fundamental skill sets before I just went out there and started started my own business, which was a fantastic foresight on her behalf. Um, it just meant that by my second year of university, there was little smoothie shops popping up everywhere. <laughs> so I kind of missed that boat. Uh, Did you run any little sort of side project businesses while you were studying at all? Like uh, I know later you, you did the construction business, but while you were studying, did you sort of launch any any small businesses? Yeah, my, like even as one of our projects, we had to start a business for ten dollars. So you had to figure out something that you could buy or you know create for ten dollars, and then you had to sell it, and then you had to report on you know how much revenue you made, how you went about going out there and finding you know, friends and family or whatever to buy stuff. Um, I think, no, it wasn't $20, it was $100. Um, you know, and I went out and was like, okay, I'll make some t-shirts. And so, you know, me and my friends just started wearing these t-shirts that I made and I would buy one t-shirt and then go and get it pressed. And then I would sell it and then I would take the proceeds from that and go get another one done. And it was just like a little um, project, but there was definitely... I just was listening to a podcast the other day. I forget the uh, the entrepreneur's name off the top of my head, but he uh, this was after my studies when I first moved to Vancouver. When I started my construction or before I went out on my own, I ha- was given a company um, truck when I started the roofing. And we moved to Vancouver. We had nothing. We had an empty house. And at the time, Craigslist is the big one over in North America. Here it's, you know, kind of, now Facebook marketplace, but used to be Gumtree. Um, you know, so every day I'd be on there looking for, you know, a free couch or a free, you know, TV unit or something that we could just furnish our apartment with. And I got one really nice couch, put it in there. And then I was like, you know, it was just somebody moving and they're like free pickup, come get it today. And it's yours. And it's a leather couch, go pick it up, bring it to the house. And then I was like, I could probably sell that you know, and offer free delivery for five, 600 bucks. And so I started doing that going, you know, we grabbed that first couch 
you know, turned around and was like, okay, if I offer free delivery on it, I could probably sell it for, you know, 500 bucks, waited till I could see the next free couch that I thought was nicer than that, went, picked that up, put that one up for 500 bucks, sold that. And then it was like a light bulb moment where we we're like, you know, if I, every day when I come home from work, if I, I, I've got this truck and, you know, the real problem is people don't have the way to go pick up a big couch and they need it tomorrow. And, you know, people who are moving don't want to move their couch. They just want to buy a new one that's going to be delivered to their um, space. So I had this truck at my disposal and I was like, that's the real piece that, you know, isn't connecting. So it got to a point where I would, you know, I knew exactly what a couch would be worth and I'd be going on there and I'd be messaging the person I'll pick up you know, in the next hour. And then I'd be posting it in the furniture section before I even picked it up and finding a buyer for, you know, 500 bucks. And I just go pick it up and deliver it to somebody else's house. And, you know, I was listening to this entrepreneur talk about that was his kind of first hustle. And he actually grew it into this used furniture business that took off. And so, yeah, there was definitely a little bit of that always in the back of my head, like, you know, there's an opportunity. Let's, let's make the most of it. Yeah, and then you found yourself in Australia working recruitment after a diverse sort of mix of experiences, and then you've gotten promoted and I imagine moved up a few times. At what point did you decide you wanted to run your own recruitment business? Was there a moment where you thought, this is what I want to do long-term? Were you you like the industry but not your employer? Talk us through that sort of journey of deciding to start your own recruitment business and to launch Claro. Yeah, so both like this this definitely isn't just a story about me. It's a story about myself and Steve, the other co-founder. Um, so both me and Steve were working for a recruitment company um, called Expand. Expand was quite well known in the APAC market for, you know, a specialty technology and digital recruitment company. Um, you know, we had, you know, we were number one supplier for Google three years running. We were working with Facebook, Yahoo, you know, eBay, um, number of the banks and everything. And we had some, you know, we had a strong team. We had offices across Hong Kong, Singapore, Melbourne, Sydney. Um, uh, and so w- w- we were doing quite well, but we were owned by this group of companies. Uh, it was called Rubicor Group. It was publicly traded. We just operated. We kind of had our own office and, you know, we had our own brand and we were kind of like this cool hip tech and digital recruitment company. And they were, you know, Rubicor government, Rubicor professional, um, you know, and they had this model of, you know, if if you have a couple guys in a boardroom that come up with a strategy, they probably, you'd think it would be a good strategy, but they had the strategy of going out and acquiring these recruitment businesses and then, you know, basically going, okay, they're, they've got um, preferred supplier agreements with this business, this business, this business, we're going to cross pollinate that across all of the businesses um but unfortunately i think just the leadership wasn't there a lot of the businesses that they would pick up just once the actual leaders that kind of built that from scratch left the business then the buy-in of the employees weren't there and then the employees would leave and then they would try and you know play catch up um but expand was i guess that darling child within the group that we were doing well um you know we were top you know, performer in the market within that tech and digital space. Um, but what happened was, you know, we were kind of operating and we were like, okay, in terms of what we're responsible for, which is expand New South Wales, 
everything's going gangbusters. You know, everything's going well. You have a few hiccups here and there, but overall, everything's going well. Um, but it's, you know, we didn't have any confidence in the leadership out of out of the overall Rubicore group. Um, started to come out that, you know, some of the contractors that were out of Adelaide um, weren't getting paid their superannuation. And then once we started hearing that, then we started looking into our superannuation and going, oh, shit, I haven't been paid superannuation in a year. Like, you know, it's something that sometimes you just forget to check. And that was just like a domino effect. Like as soon as that happened, it was quite evident that they were using, you know, like couldn't keep up with the demands of the business that instead of making hard decisions and shutting down certain divisions that weren't performing, they were a bit delusional that, you know, I will turn it around, turn it around, turn it around. Um, And then so we were kind of, I think both me and Steve were kind of like, what do we do? We know at this point, Expand's being sold. And to be honest with you, probably everybody in Expand was hoping that someday that would that would come, you know, like this thing that we had built under Rubicor would be, you know, shifted out and put into, uh, put under new leadership. Um, and we'd still be, have what we, you know, had worked so hard for, but we'd have more competent um, people at the top um, or just even get away from, you know, get away from be, being under a publicly traded business. Um, so both Steve and I, as part of that, you know, purchase. And once we knew that that purchase was going to happen, we're going out and meeting with a lot of people that were interested, uh, buyers, um, buyers in the market. Um, it, we were kind of, I guess at a crossroads where we were like, do we walk away from all these, you know, businesses that we've worked hard to bring on under partnership? Do we walk away from, you know, everything that we've built up? Do we stick around and see, you know, who do we get sold to? You know, is it going to be somebody that we're excited about and that, you know, then we can kind of reignite that passion? Or is it going to be, you know, somebody that just plans on chopping and change, you know, chopping up our business and taking bits and bobs of it? And, you know, all of our staff are going to be made redundant anyway. So we were kind of of two mindsets. And then we were like, you know, if it goes the chop, chop up the business and just take what they can in terms of assets out of it, then, you know, we'll probably go out and start our own business and take, take on that, uh, you know, kind of leap of faith. Uh, when it came to that point where we were like, okay, we know who's buying expand. We're, you know, when I did research into the, you know, the directors and stuff, I was like, oh, I'm not going down this route again. Um, and it did become evident that they were purely just buying, you know, the assets, the brand, some of the PSAs, but they had, you know, no real, no huge amount of interest in terms of taking everybody and being able to support that under the business. It was a direct competitor where, you know, it was essentially double ops of everybody. So you were knew that they were just going to go through and, you know, go, yeah, thanks for no thanks. We've already got, you know, somebody with the, with these responsibilities. So it was definitely quite a wild ride at that time, you know, watching the administrators go through the business, seeing the extent of the incompetence at the leadership level. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't hold back on how, you know, 
you know, I don't know if I'll ever see my superannuation from that year, you know, from that year. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely was a real rough period where everybody was just like, what is going on? What's going to happen? Who knows us at the leadership level going like, you know, wait a minute, you know, we understand your concerns, but there's, there could be a light at the end of this tunnel, but also prepare for worst case scenario here. And so it was, it was difficult for everybody that was going through that. I, you know, anybody that's been through a business going through administration, it's an awful, awful experience. Um, but during that period of time, we met one of the investors that was looking at possibly buying expand, you know, uh, Steve had, uh, worked with him previously. Um, and, you know, we kind of went to him and said, look, this is actually what we're thinking. You know, would you like to be an investor um, in our business? We're planning on going out on our own. Um, and uh, yeah, luckily he said yes. And then it was almost, you know, it all happened so quick. It was like, okay, this is, you know, we just found out that this is the decision route that it's going down. You know, next day we're looking for offices, you know, still don't even have a name for the business or anything. And then, you know, three weeks later, you're like, okay, we've got an office, we've got a name. And then a week later, you're walking into your office and you're just like, okay, here we go. Let's, let's do this. And you've been in the recruitment industry for a number of years at this point, like I said, in a senior sort of management position, you've run your own businesses, you've studied entrepreneurship, you've sort of grown up in your dad's business. So in some ways, you know, it's an industry, you know, and you've been an operator and an owner before. What was the first 12 months like, though, coming out of the ashes of this other business? Was it easier because you've done it before? Was it in some ways harder than you expected? I think, uh, well, yeah, I think, I mean, there was a part of me where, you know, you run your own business. You know, I always say to people, never start running your own business if your, you know, real goal is to work less um, because you're probably never going to work more in your life, um, you know, and you know, so the, there was a hesitation there initially, even with us going out and coming up with this idea. You know, I think Steve was quite gung ho about it, where he was just like, "Yep, yep, let's do it. It's exciting. I've never done it before." While I've, you know, I was a little bit more like, "Okay, I know what this means in terms of, you know, how much work I have to do, um, and what it's probably going to mean." You know, yes, you do get to that point eventually where you're like, "Okay, you know, I can kind of step back," but you know, the first few years are definitely a wild ride. Um, and then we had the, I guess the extra bit, like when we opened our doors, it was October, 2019. Um, you know, so just four months before that, you know, the pandemic hit the market absolutely got obliterated, you know, and, you know, I was, I just remember sitting there kind of March first week of March, just like, you know, head and hands just going what have we done you know like we've just started a recruitment company just signed leases and everything for these offices you know just hired our first you know six seven staff members we had just launched hong kong um you know they had only been an opera you know set up one month and this happened and uh, you're just like the market's you know, completely dead when it comes to recruitment. It's just layoffs everywhere. Everybody's going to skeleton staff, especially within the recruitment industry. Um, so we, we were kind of like, you know, went from, you know, excitement to, you know, absolute lowest of the low. 
everybody's locked in their home, you know, we're trying to do Zoom calls to keep everybody upbeat and everything. And all we could really do is just go, you know, guys, your your jobs are safe. You know, we're going to back you. We're going to ride this out. We've got, you know, nine, 10 months worth of investment behind us. Let's just do what we can. And so we worked quite a bit on trying to get some of the operations, you know, some of the documentation, the marketing in place. We also just went out there and worked really hard to find, you know, any work that we could find in the market. Um, and then we went within that same 12 month period to the market, just going complete opposite gangbusters where it was like, okay, all of a sudden everybody's left Australia. Everybody, you know, things are getting back to normal. You know, there's this big shift happening where people don't want to go into retail anymore. They want to go into offices because offices, you can work from home and everybody's excited about this whole work from home movement. So there's just so much happening in the employment market that was just, you know, just, you know, all over the shop. Um, it made for kind of a bit of a, you know, I don't want to call it a perfect storm because, you know, we were definitely very candidate short, but in terms of, you know, the market realizing the value and what a recruitment company offers to their business. And, you know, uh, that, that was a big shift, you know, where it was like all of a sudden our, our skill sets were very high in demand. And was there ever a point, especially maybe like the sort of March, April, which was probably some of the worst um, part of it, I imagine, um, where you thought, I-, I need to just shut it down, get a job, I'm burning cash, or, or did you think, no, I- I've-, I've seen ups and downs in like so the housing market, I've pivoted before, I've adjusted, I've moved, like this can't last forever as long as we wait it out, we'll sort of be okay? Or did part of you sort of think or you and your business partner ever think about, do we just go back and get jobs ourselves? No, I think... Um... Like even when going through the housing market uh, crash um, previously, like I had to lay off a lot of staff. Um, you always have to have like this. I always find that you have to have the mindset that the business is its own entity. Like, you know, you have to make decisions that are good for the business because if the business doesn't survive, then, you know, everybody loses their job. The business is under, you know, all that hard work goes for nothing. So you can always adjust your approach to the business. You you know, like we could go down to paying ourselves, you know, next to nothing and, you know, just have me and Steve sitting in our, um, you know, in our bedrooms in each of our office, uh, in each of our houses, um, you know, and then still have that business that we could then still grow back out and make things happen for. So, the mindset was, I think, always there that, you know, of course you reach a certain point where it's like, okay, wait a minute, this is this is as far as we can go in terms of debt, or you know, this is where you kind of throw your hands up. But we always had that mindset of and kind of pushing that across our employees that now we're gonna make a go of this. Like, let's go, you know, we'll back you, you back us, let's let's make this happen. So you know, you definitely get disenchanted where you're going, what the heck is going on. Um, but, you know, I we try not to let that, you know, you know, screw this, I'm going to the beach kind of mindset, you know, kind of come into, come into our way of thinking. 
And so you grew 339% last financial year, so more than tripling, doing nearly $12 million in annual revenue, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia, riding the bumpy you know, labour market recruitment waves of the last few years. Um, was there a point where it all sort of clicked or, or was it, again, the market in the last year or two really sort of tightening up, which, again, like you said, sort of helped in the recruitment space where clients sort of saw the need and what was it like sort of managing that growth, you know, tripling and continuing to expand so rapidly? Um, yeah, I would say, I mean, it was probably a combination. Like we had actually signed up a lot of the major accounts that we, you know, that helped us go through that growth before, you know, either just in that four months before we, you know, had the pandemic hit and some of them during the pandemic where we were, doing this heavy headhunting and finding these very niche skill sets in the market that, you know, that relied quite heavily on overseas um, candidates coming into the market and very few locally, you know, we were those guys that were, you know, finding them, finding a way to get in touch with them and, you know, really trying to convince them to make moves. So there's always a, there's always something in the market, you know, there's always a need for that skill set in the market, no matter what is happening, even if there's mass layoffs, there's always, and especially in the Australian market, a skills shortage where we just are this island, you know, um, that we do rely quite heavily on overseas people coming in. So even during that pandemic period, we were able to kind of find that work and, you know, get some of those clients coming on board. I think the, we focus quite heavily on, you know, quality delivery, you know, or services, services-based business, you know, so it's when we get the opportunity to work with client, everything we're doing is trying to, you know, do the, provide quality candidates and, you know, provide a service that's a step above our competition. So I think that was one of the piece, you know, like market hundred percent contributing to it, but you could be getting all these jobs thrown around and there was tons of jobs being thrown around the market to lots of recruitment companies. But I think the differentiator was there that, you know, our clients were coming to us and going, you know, I sent this job over to, you know, XYZ agency. They've had it for three months. They haven't been able to find anybody. First three CVs that you guys have sent across have been fantastic, you know, and then they're introducing you to other areas of the business that are also struggling and hiring, you know, and then we kind of grew to a point where, you know, we were quickly becoming the top or, you know, second second uh, top supplier um, within these major accounts that we were bringing on. So that actually fueled a lot of our growth. It wasn't a lot of us running around and bringing on, you know, 150 little tiny small businesses. It was, you know, being quite strategic about the businesses that we were working with and making sure that we were, you know, giving 110% to every role that they were releasing to us. And that, you know, expanded those accounts. And then it meant that there was, uh, I guess, more work coming our way, which then we had to expand in order to, and grow in order to meet those demands um, of our clients. So it wasn't just pure, market it wasn't pure just you know cowboy recruitment that we were going through it was you know quite strategic and i think you know we've built some very strong partnerships and then those partnerships have you know meant that other companies are interested in what we're doing um and i think 
to be honest with you, with all of that growth, we still could have done with more people. Like I look back at that period of time and I'm going, look, there was a lot of, you know, we got inundated with work where, you know, I, we're always looking for an ideal number of roles that each consultant is working with. You know, you don't want each consultant having 20, 30 roles on because then it's like, oh, it's just manic and you, you're never giving the full service and quality that you need to any one of those roles. So, you know, although we went through crazy growth, you know, we probably could have done with more, but we were also, you know, going through the same challenges that everybody else in the market was, which was, it was hard to find really good talent. Um, it was also, you know, the market went crazy in terms of salary. And I think, you know, there'll be some adjustments that happen over the next year or so. You know, there was definitely some needed increase in salary in terms of inflation and, you know, getting salaries in line with inflation. But then there was, you know, some of that extra push where people were just taking advantage of the market and some of the companies out there that were willing to throw the money at the problems. Um, but I think as some of those problems alleviate, you know, that will be adjusted. So we were conscious of that as well. Even within the recruitment market, there is lots of recruiters with, you know, minimal experience going, I want this. And, you know, we're going, look, that's just going to kick a problem down the, down the road for us. Um, so that, you know, that kind of held back some of the growth that I think that we could have actually gone through that we didn't. And so that's a good transition into the next question, which is where do you, no, no one has a crystal ball, of course, but for 2023, um, again, it right now is very low unemployment in Australia still when we're recording this at right in the late December 2022. Um, are you sort of optimistic that things will continue sort of strongly in Australia or do you think there's already some signs of slowdowns and layoffs in like the North American market and other places which will, you know, in turn sort of trickle through and like you said, um, suppress salaries, increase unemployment. What are your sort of overall sort of feelings on the, the sector in, in the new year? Um, we're still seeing it very strong, um, but I think there's only one place to go from here. Like, you know, you can't have, you know, record-breaking unemployment rates, you know, which with the borders being closed, you know, borders are open back up. We're noticing influx of talent coming back into the market you know, the government make, taking steps towards, you know, opening up uh, visa requirements. Um, you, you know, we're seeing, like I met with Seek literally yesterday um, and looking at the data of, you know, okay, these are all the different uh, seg segments that we operate in and specialize in, you know, where's the gap between the number of applicants and the number of roles that are being advertised. We're still so far into, you know, the realm of you know when you look at the 25-year history um historical data we're so far still in you know this unseen space before that there's really only one way for it to go and it will come down it will start to write itself i don't know if it will be you know the doom and gloom and full-blown recession that you know sells newspapers but it will be you know definitely not the absolute craziness that we've gone through over the last you know 12 to 8 you know 12 months um it will start to normalize a little bit i still think that it will be much stronger than it was in kind of financial you know uh going into july 2019 
Um, you know, so we're still going to be in a much stronger position, but, you know, there will be that stuff going through the news about like, oh, layoffs happening, this happening. And the only no- unknown bit about that is, you know, what the f- that fear and what it creates. It's almost like I was talking about the housing market crash in the US and, you know, Canada, you know, completely different way that we handle our mortgages, but that fear crept into the market. And then people started going like, I need to be reactive to this. We need to make redundancies and stuff. Um, I think there will be quite a few restructures over the next year. Um, businesses going, okay, we paid, you know, 20, 30 K more a year for this role than we historically have. And, you know, they're actually not producing, you know, that kind of ROI within our business. And, you know, as the market normalizes again, people will be out there that will be willing to do that work for that um, same pay. Uh, I can see, you know, businesses doing the restructures, not so much to, you know, that we don't need the workers anymore. It's the restructure. Let's see what we can do to get our costs back under control. Um, while a lot of businesses were just throwing money at problems over the last year, um, especially when it came to hiring. And is there anything specifically you see yourself changing in your business or how you approach clients or candidates or anything like that? Um, I think, you know, next year we're going to be focusing quite a bit on new client acquisition. You know, we were kind of in a position where we were doing everything we could to keep up with the demand of the existing clients that we had. Um, but now we're kind of at that point where we're like, okay, we have a nice foundation here that can handle the amount of work that's coming through from, from our clients. Um, we're going to be focusing on, I guess, expanding into new markets, bring on new, new businesses. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that'll be a big focus for us next year. Yeah, and so you've um, worked in, in Canada and the North American markets, in Australia and the APAC markets, studied entrepreneurship. What, what sort of trends do you see Australian entrepreneurs you know, doing well at? And then what areas do you see maybe compared to other countries where Australian entrepreneurs you know, are still leaving room for potential and opportunity? Uh, I think Australia has some amazing you know, local success stories, you've got Canva, Atlassian, you know, there's a whole host of them out there, but, you know, obviously those are international ones. Um, I think, uh, I think sometimes I see Australia, uh, the, that entrepreneurial process of seeing something that works in the U S or something that works overseas in another market that hasn't come to Australia yet. And some of those, you know, some people go out there and go, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to copy this. We're going to put it into the Australian market. I think that is, you know, a model that works quite well for a short period of time. But, you know, sometimes you see those businesses then go, okay, now we're moving over to Australia. We've got, you know, we have, a, I guess, a stronger international brand. Um, you know, so I think... I think that's one thing that I see a lot of, you know, like we've seen some of the delivery services, uh, local delivery services, businesses kind of go down on the last little wall and, you know, it's okay. You're got, you've taken this model, but, you know, really if Uber, you know, whoever wanted to come in and take, you know, take that market, 
they've got the deep pockets to you know kind of sink the smaller guys um which i don't like seeing you know i hate seeing it um but i think that you know i see it quite a bit where you know we're going to do this based off of this model that works overseas and then you know it will work for a period of time but may not work over the long run um i think that you know i think we just don't have as many investors as well like i i think you know the actual capital investment that is available to you know entrepreneurs isn't the same as it is over in the US you know there's i think more money i guess flowing around in that market than there is you know yes it's much more competitive on the on you know on the entrepreneurs going for that money going for that money but there's you know a bit more of it going around and it's more readily available i think the knowledge of how to get access to those funds as well is a little bit more well known than it is in australia um that's just my personal experience with it uh so, so yeah, do no. you think in some ways you were an outlier to sort of get investment you have i imagine friends running other recruitment businesses that you've sort of met or, or known and the fact you're able to sort of get investment um do you think that's sort of unusual or is it not as uncommon as people think for a sort of b2b service-based business to be able to secure investment um i think it's not that usual like services is definitely usually you know you see a lot of the vc going towards you know tech businesses or more tangible products um rather than services uh but you know i think from the outset i was i didn't want to be if you go out on your own you have to wait for profits and it's coming out of your own pocket and then even once you get profits you have to then you know set aside some of those profits for cash flow and then you have to take that little bit of profit of whatever's left over and that's what you can work with in terms of a strategy to grow your business and you know some people underestimate how small that little piece of money will be they've got you know big ideas and they're like we're going to do this we're going to do this and then they get into it and they're like holy crap i've got only two employees and you know these systems are costing me this much money and my first office is costing me this much money and it's like the grandeur ideas of going in there and being like i'm going to do this and i'm going to grow to this um it it's almost like a harsh reality i had to go through it as well where i was like you know i'm going to do this i'm going to hire this many people and then you're like okay before i can hire this many you know this next person i need to know that this is here we're making this much money and i still need that much money to go out and you know even for the construction business buy that many tools to give to that employee um you know and get a truck for them to be able to run around in you know so you're going i have to make all of this profits have that much held in cash flow and then take that little bit of extra bit and keep adding to it until i can enact this next strategy investment isn't like a silver bullet to that but it means that you can kind of come in and go all right we're going to do this in the first 6 months and it's going to cost us much money we're going to take that venture invest that money and you know then you can move on to the next strategy and then the profits start coming and then you can move into that place of okay now we've got this cash flow we've got this profits these are what we're reinvesting into our 
um, reinvesting into our strategy. We've paid back all our initial investment. If we have a good opportunity to come up in the market, we can dip back into that investment and take advantage of it without going, oh, crap, there's a huge opportunity there in the market. And we don't have the profits or the ability to act on it. Um, so that's, yeah, that's one thing that I guess I would say about that. Yeah, so it's not going to help something that, you know, there's no demand or it's not working, suddenly work. But if you, it's working well and the, the limit is, again, you can't afford the growth that you already have to deliver on, it removes some of that limit. But again, it won't turn something unsuccessful into successful. No, no. And yeah, you see plenty of people get that initial investment. You, the burn rate that you can see on, you know, some of the businesses, even that, you know, I've invested in or... You know, you um, that you know, even some of the mentors that I have, or even the investor that we have that he's got, and you're just like the burn rate at which they're burning cash before they actually get that product to market. It's, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And, you know, it's all based on if that big aha moment happens. Mm. And so, what would you say to someone who's sort of 18 to maybe 21 right now? So they might have finished high school, they might have just finished uni, and they're at that pivotal moment where they're trying to figure out what to do, maybe what industry, what role, do they move abroad? What advice would you give to, to someone like that who's maybe a bit like yourself, interested in you know business and having a go, but doesn't really know where to start or, or what to what direction to head? Yeah, I mean, there's 100% there's... Um, I guess it's a big contention in the, you know, like you see all over Facebook, you know, people being like, you know, I don't, I don't have an education and, you know, look at what I built. Um, and, and, you know, I look back at it and I go, well, I could have maybe built something successful without an education. Some people, you know, usually when I see those people that are like, you know, I've built this and this is my success, they tend to have very strong sales skills. You know, so they're good salespeople and, you know, having a good salesperson in, in your business is a huge key to success. Um, yes, there's some, you know, you can have tech businesses out there that, you know, have just built something that has revolutionized the market and it sells itself. But most businesses, you need a very good, especially starting out, somebody that's out there going out of the market, introducing themselves. Um I would still lean towards like, you know, if I was talking to my 18, 20 year old self, I would, I would say pay more attention in accounting class. Um, you know, it's as you grow your business, your life starts living in PL and cash flow reports and understanding what, what money's doing within your business and where your money's going and where it's coming from is vitally important to having a very strong, sustainable business. Um, while I was more like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, stuff this accounting class, I don't, I don't need it. Uh, you know, that's one of the ones I'll skip out on. Um, I'll get the grade in order to graduate, but, you know, I probably didn't pay as much attention in it as I, you know, now looking back, I wish I had of. And a lot of my time is spent trying to upskill myself in the, in those areas. Um, so finance, don't underestimate finance. Don't underestimate sales as well. Like I, you know, went through a lot of my career being like sales, you know, you picturing this used car salesman. It's like, you know, the last thing I ever want to do is go into sales and then you end up in business and you're like 
so much of it is sales. I wish I had of you know been taught more sales um, skills throughout my career. Like um, even during the present, you know, when I won that business plan competition, you know, the ones that made it at the finals, you know, I was watching as they were, you know, presenting on this on the stage, and I was going, uh, you know, crap. <laughs> I was not as strong a presenter as they were, you know, I'd buy for them over me as well. Um, you know, so that was a big kind of click aha moment. Um, you know, I've watched, you know, my father probably take that approach of the business will just sell itself. My, you know, product will sell itself and it's never really taken off and got to that point where it's, it's really humming along because I think because of that view that he just, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't want to do sales. And, you know, that just, I think that's a real hard, it's rare that that really comes together and clicks well. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, multiple times, you know, a uh, manager, uh, supervisor sort of tapped you on the shoulder, so to speak. So they sort of saw you were doing good work. They noticed you were, um, you know, a bit different, I guess, to, to maybe your peers. And, what advice would you give for someone who is, you know, an employee, but you know they're not being tapped on the shoulder, or again, being a, a CEO and a manager and an owner yourself? What do you look for in, in people that you hire that maybe again young, 20, 25 year olds, early in their career, um, that makes you think I'm going to tap this person on the shoulder um, versus someone else? Yeah. Um, so you don't need any experience for work ethic. You don't. It doesn't take any experience to you know, just make management's life easier by showing up on time. You know, it, you know, I think there's, a, um, I think early on, like, because I be became a manager and, you know, uh, or I guess I started running my own business, I started thinking along the lines of like, what is my manager going through right now? Like, you know, and you see a lot of employees being like, you know, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? And, you know, they should do this. And I've got this bright, you know, got this idea. And, you know, why aren't they enacting it? And, you know, I think pausing and just going like, what, you know, what are they responsible for? You know, are they responsible for P&Ls? Do they have to, you know, do they have a boss above them that's going, you know, like, how well is your team delivering? You know, are you contributing towards their success or are you, you know, kind of, hindering their success, getting in that mindset of, you know, not just the, what are you giving me? What are you giving me? But going like, what can I contribute? What are the, what are their main drivers? It's very easy usually to understand what a manager's main drivers are. Like, you know, they're going to be talking to you about it in every single one-on-one. -on -one. You know, I think that, you know, I found I was always surrounded by employees that were resistant to it. They were like, you know, oh, you know, why, why would they, you know, why are they always asking me about this? You know, da, da, da. like what's an example of something where maybe your peers at your level were sort of acting one way, but then you had the empathy to say, well, for my manager, actually be really helpful if I, you know, did something. Do you remember any of your previous sort of roles where you sort of went against the grain a bit and that's really what sort of helped you to sort of stand out um, for your yeah, manager? Yeah, I think definitely like you always have, you know, people that are like, oh, you know, you know, all the employees are down at the pub and, you know, they're like, I'm going to call in sick tomorrow. You know, I'm going to call, you know, I'm going to pull a sickie. Um, and I guess I just 
was always like, you know, I'm not going to get ahead if, you know, somebody's going to know that, you know, oh, Monday, Tuesday, I was all fine. Thursday, I'm out sick and I can't drag myself into work. Uh, but then Friday, I show up all, you know, bushy tailed. Um, you know, so I, I guess just I always knew that, you know, that's just like one on one when you come, uh, you know, when you're employed and a business is investing in you, you know, that that's an easy way that you can give back to the business just by showing up. And, you know, when you show up, put in the work. Um, and I think I always had, you know, a bit of a competitive streak in me as well. Like, you know, I didn't want it to do better. I want to, you know, stand out. And the way that I did that was by working hard. You know, I watched my dad work hard throughout his life. You know, it's, you know, I see a lot of it now where as will probably cause some contention, but, you know, I see a lot of junior employees coming through and, you know, they're like, I want to work from home every day. And it's like, okay, you know, you're really, you know, putting yourself at a disadvantage in terms of what you're going to learn, because that means that every single time you're, you're going to learn something from your manager, it has to be through a Zoom call. Your manager can't spend all day on a Zoom call with you. And even, you know, while I was onboarding employees, while we were in lockdown, it was such a time drain on me to, okay, set up this Zoom meeting. I know, you know, and then this Zoom meeting and instead of what used to be, you know, 10, 15 minutes, put, pulling my chair over to somebody's computer and showing them and then them even learning by listening to other experienced people around them, how they talk to clients, how they handle objections, you know, some of the business acumen knowledge that they have, they're not absorbing that. They're just at home going, I'm pretty sure I'm doing this perfect. And I think that there's, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I I see those people in my business that are like, you know, I'm showing up every day. You know, I I want to learn from other people. I also want that interaction. I want, you know, I want to be contributing to the culture of the business. That, you know, is usually the people that we're going, okay, that person's putting 110% in, you know, and then you have other employees that are like, and everybody's got their own drivers. And, you know, if your driver isn't to become manager and take things to the next level, by all means, you know, some of us just get to a certain point in our career where we just want to be able to work from home. We're highly experienced and we just want to spend more time with the family. But if your driver is to, you know, take that next step in your career and get tapped on the shoulder, then, you know, I would say it's a big, easy way without any real experience that you can do to really get the attention of your managers. And you mentioned earlier as well, your mindset of being like a sponge, whether you're at a roofing company, standing on the roof next to the experienced contractors and watching what they do, I imagine, um, yeah. or in your recruitment roles. And I guess your overall theme is it's much harder to be a sponge if you're remote, right? Because you can't jump into the client pitch meeting. You can't sit in and watch an interview. I mean, you can, obviously, if it's sort of structured through Zoom, but it's a lot harder for those spontaneous sponge moments to sort of yeah. soak up um, if, again, you're ambitious and really want to sort of learn and, and stand out. 100%. And, yeah, it's not – and I think there's a bit of, you know, back and forth with it where, you know, like the employees are like, no, you just need to put together a really good training program. And it's like, oh, 
that I still have lines and I still have things that I do in my career today that I picked and grabbed from hearing other really high performers within a business say or do. Um, and I think that's a real learning opportunity that sometimes gets lost and uh, maybe not lost, but really slowed down by having complete, you know, work from home workforce. Um, and, you know, you just, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, we're also trying to find the balance. Like we want to give employees the flexibility we want to attract good people into our business. And, you know, the number one driver right now is that flexibility, but, you know, I think this is more for those people that really want to go, okay, I want to take things to the next level. I want to, you know, I want to take my career here. I don't want to slow down that process. You know, what can I do today? You know, I can show up, I can, you know, be a sponge. I can, you know, start to understand what the drivers of the business are, start aligning my way of thinking and my actions to those drivers of the business um, and the strategies of the business. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to also make sure that you're doing it within a business that you're a bit passionate about as well. Like if you're, if you're, it's completely different if you're in a business that, you know, you're hating life every single day going into work. I would say if that's, if that's, where you're at, then, you know, find a better mentor, find a, a management team that is willing to spend more time, sit down with you, work with you. You know, I was a sponge, but, you know, every single time I was a sponge, somebody was sitting there going, yeah, this is why we do that. Or, you know, yeah, you know, yes, the training says this, but really it's because the next step in your career is this and it aligns to this. You don't see that yet until you, you know, get three years experience, but you know, it will all come together and it'll be, you'll see the broader picture as to why it's happening. And then once I understood that broader picture, I was like, okay, now I understand why, you know, although I was sometimes resistant to it at the time I was, you know, I, I guess, I'm being a bit vague, but, you know, it would be like, you know, somebody being like, you need to call this many clients, you know, and I'm just like, why do I need to call that many clients? You know, if I can make two phone calls and I can get the same results, why do I need to do that? You're then realizing like, oh, the reason why they wanted me to call that many clients is because they don't want me to just get two clients. They want me to get, you know, 15 clients and they talk about two so that you don't get discouraged when you don't bring on 15. Um, but when you're sitting there and you don't understand it fully in the beginning, you're just like, you're questioning it and, you know, almost like pushing back. And then, you know, it, it does, there will be a point where you get that ha-ha moment. Hmm. And so zooming back into sort of Claro specifically, um, what do you see the sort of five year? Do you have a vision, a direction, a goal in the medium term we, that you're looking to achieve? Yeah, we're definitely going to be continuing to expand across the APAC market. Um, so, probably the three markets that are on our radar for the short term is Singapore, Brisbane, and ACT. Um, seeing quite a bit of, you know, the Brisbane startup market is you know, really starting to come on the map. Not that it was 
completely off the map, but you know, definitely noticing a lot of successful startups coming out of uh, ACT, quite an eye-opener as well as to how many of those AFR Fast 100s were Brisbane-based businesses. Um, so, you know, that's definitely on our radar. I think I know the importance of getting the right first hire for launching an office. So we don't usually set, you know, okay, we're going to do this by this date. We're kind of working towards it as a high level goal, but we won't pull, pull the trigger on it until we're confident that we found the right person, um, to make that happen. Um, you know, that first hire within a business is so vitally important to get right. Um, so we don't really have, you know, you start to realize that your business plan is, you know, a living, breathing thing. You can have all these, you know, goals and, um, you know, be working towards these uh, strategies, but, you know, the market could fall out, you know, COVID could hit tomorrow or whatever, and you have to be able to pivot and be reactive to it. So we have our high-level strategies. We're definitely going to be continuing to grow all of our offices across um, Australia. We'll grow maybe a little bit in Hong Kong, but we're pretty at a pretty uh, comfortable position within Hong Kong. Um, and then we definitely will be looking at you know Brisbane ACT and Singapore. And do you do anything in New Zealand at the moment? Nothing in New Zealand at the moment. Um, New Zealand market's a tough one. Um, yeah, I think New Zealand's quite an interesting market. Um, it's... It's not as though it's off of our radar, but, you know, I think what we kind of do well is go after the major financial hubs um, of the APAC market. And especially within, you know, we do quite a bit with, you know, the capital market space and, you know, these very niche skill sets, um, you know, that understand high frequency trading system, low latency, high availability systems. so we, you know, that was part of the reason why we were quite strategic about launching Hong Kong and probably the early days where most businesses would have uh, thought to go Melbourne before Hong Kong, if you've got a Sydney-based um, office. Um, New Zealand is just not quite on that, uh, you know, is not that huge, large financial hub. There isn't that ability for us to kind of move our candidates, you know, Singapore is on our radar because we can move the candidates from Hong Kong to Singapore, Singapore to Hong Kong, from Hong Kong down to Sydney. Um, but uh, New Zealand doesn't have that deep pool of candidates that we're really trying to, um, I guess, dip into as the market maybe turns a little bit and it's more about available candidates and we're not moving them around from these hubs and we're just partnering with strong tech technology businesses and just finding them local talent and helping them you know stand out against their competition when it comes to the competitive uh talent market you know then we might start looking at that but we're kind of initially first on this strategy of connecting these major financial hubs um first yeah, excellent. And do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, I think don't underestimate how important hiring is. We see a lot of businesses uh, underestimate it. 
um, you know, getting the right person. We all have seen it. And a lot of these people listening will be entrepreneurs. And then, you know, how important it is to get somebody in there that just knows what they need to do and how that frees up your time and puts you into that position where you can delegate and look at, you know, what, what lever needs to be pulled next, you know, and work on that higher level strategy. Um, yeah. I, you know, which is kind of why I was interested in getting into it in the first place and why I'm still passionate about it to this day. Excellent. Thanks so much, Tyler. All right. No problem. All right. Thanks, Derek. Cool. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.